In this time of desperation When all we know is doubt and fear There is only one foundation We believe We believe Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Bible Church. My name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections, and it is wonderful to be with you on this wonderful Sunday. On behalf of the elders and the staff, we are thankful for your presence this morning as we gather to worship the Lord through song and through hearing his word preached. Uh, and so whether you're joining us here in the worship center or whether you're on the live stream with us, uh, we are appreciative and thankful uh, for you being here uh, and being with us and gathering with God's people. If you're new to Faith Bible this morning, if this is your first time here, we are thankful for your presence as well. We would love to meet you, uh, and we invite you to the Welcome Center after the service. It's right out these back doors across the foyer, and there'll be some folks there to get to know you and give you, give you some information about the church and, uh, and just uh, get to know you and your family a little bit, answer any questions you might have. And so, again, if you're visiting for the first time, thank you so much uh, for being with us this morning. Uh, we do have a couple of announcements before we uh, turn our hearts uh, into worshiping through song this morning. Uh, so if you're a parent of a young child and would like to participate, to participate in our next parent-child dedications. Uh, those are coming up on Sunday, November the 29th. So a, a few Sundays from now, um, we're going to be doing those in both services, and we'd love for you and your family to be a part of that. You can sign up on the current sign-ups page on the Faith Bible website. If you have more questions about uh, parent-child dedications, you can always call the church offices as well. And so we'd love to see you do that on uh, November the 29th. Second in your bulletin today is a list of important church uh, events and dates coming up as we enter the holiday season. So I'd encourage you to take a look at your bulletin sometime today. Look at these events. Lots of things that are you know, ramping up and happening during the holidays. And we would love for you and your family to be a part of those things. And so, again, take a look at your bulletin. All those dates are listed out there for you today. Uh, and so as we focus our hearts and our worship on God through, uh, this morning through the lifting up of our voices, um, I pray that our hearts would reflect the two commands that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And there he says this. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Pray with me as we enter God's presence and worship his holy name this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. 
uh, to lift up your holy name, to, to worship you and praise you, God, in spirit and in truth. And I pray that this morning, God, that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that you would guide us uh, into your presence with thanksgiving and with praise. Father, we commit our time to you, we commit our lives to you. We ask that as we leave this place later today, that you would shine through us, God, that our, our lives would be a light unto this very dark world. And so we look to you right now, we thank you for, for your Holy Spirit guide, guidance and, and comfort and love, and we just pray that we would, we would worship you through his uh, leading and through his presence in our life. And so we thank you for Jesus and his death and resurrection. We do commit all these things to him and his glory. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Would you stand this morning? Let's lift up the name that is above every other name as we sing this great hymn. All hail the power. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the
so good to lift our voices together to the Lord of all. You can be seated this morning as you get to hear about something really wonderful. So good to see you this morning. Recently, we made a decision to be more intentional about praying for and promoting our missionary partnerships in our services. Uh, one of our core values at Faith Bible Church is to serve the church in the world. And you really can't talk about doing that. You can't talk about missions here without mentioning Faith Works of the Inner City. How many of you have heard of Faith Works of the Inner City? Awesome. Most of you. That's good. Uh, I'm going to ask Sally Gowen to go ahead and come out. Uh, Sally is the director, the founder of uh, Faith Works of the Inner City. And I can't tell you how much I just admire uh, and love Sally Gowen. Uh, she, 20 years ago, thought she was retiring from teaching. Uh, but because she was willing and available, God led her uh, to start a ministry in the Scheidler neighborhood in South Oklahoma City. And so for over 20 years, FaithWorks has sought to meet the educational, spiritual, and physical needs of inner city children and their families. And, and they do this um, in that neighborhood, the Scheidler Elementary, Scheidler Wheeler community. They establish after school programs, biblical training, and community development. And really, in just saying that mission statement out loud, that just scratches the surface of everything that FaithWorks does. And so I'm going to ask Sally just to give you another little snapshot uh, of what is going on at FaithWorks now, and, and, and generally speaking, how their ministry uh, seeks to fulfill that goal. Well, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, it's really, really, really hard to tell what FaithWorks does. Um, you just need to come see it. And anytime you want to come, we're there, and I'd be glad to give you a tour because we have everything from storm shelters to houses to food to lots of kids, or we used to have lots of kids. Um, <clears throat> so our mission statement, well, let me back up a little bit. We are dedicated only to the 73129 zip code, which is a 21 or 20 block area of um, southeast Oklahoma City. It's the second poorest community in the state of Oklahoma. And so everything you can think of that comes with poverty is right there in that 20 blocks. So in our mission statement, when we say we meet the physical needs, we feed children dinner every evening. Um, I would say the greatest physical need that we meet, especially during this time, is the emotional needs of our community. Um, these are people who are isolated, they're people who are scared, they're people who don't have a lot of friends and family around, they've come from other places, and so they just need someone to listen and they need someone to pray. And we've been doing an awful lot of that during this COVID season. Um, educationally, our kids are two years behind in school, they start that way, they stay that way, and they drop out in the ninth grade. 46% uh, of the students in that 20 block area have dropped out of school when I came to that community. Currently, through um, looking at that and saying education is a key, we started a Mommy and Me program for three-year-olds. It's free to our community. Unfortunately, we're not able to do that during this time, uh, but that has been a key to moving our kids forward. We've done that for eight years. Get this. Now then, 30, only 13% of the kids in our community drop out of school. Right now, yeah. <laughs> right now we have um, two college graduate, graduates and we have seven students who are attending college right now. So we have an educational fund for them. We help them with gas money, computers, things that their um, financial aid doesn't cover. So physical, educationally, spiritually. Spiritually, God has called us to this community. Um, I'm humbled and amazed to see how he loves this neighborhood. He's just allowed me to be there, which is such a privilege. 
everything we do, we try to point people toward Jesus because we know that that's their hope. If I'm doing a cooking class, we talk about God giving us our hands and how wonderful our hands are that we can create things. If we're doing a craft, we talk about God's amazing and extreme creativity. Um, we have a Bible study for teenagers. We have a Bible study for middle school kids. We have our own version of a WANA program. Um, so we're just trying really hard during this tough season to pull everyone back together. And let me kind of tell you what that looks like. So we usually, and I hope we go back to usually, had 200 students that were in elementary school coming to our center after school each day. We called all 200 of those parents and said, can you commit to bringing your student to our center knowing that all 200 wouldn't come. Only 40 committed because of the fear of, of the virus, et cetera. So we've sanitized, we've got face shields, face masks, people in every corner of space that we can separate people. And currently we have 40 uh, children coming to our center and 24 middle schoolers. I'll have to tell you when they first came during COVID, and these are children that we know well, that we have a deep relationship with, they came back and they cried because they had to come in the center because they were so afraid. Um, they were so shy, so afraid to come because they had been so isolated. And that just broke my heart and let me know that we were doing exactly what God wanted us to do by opening our doors and welcoming those 40 in. And as sad as I am that we don't have 200, God called just the right 40 to be there. And we are just pouring into their lives every single day into the lives of their parents. Um, so we've really been working on that, working with our middle schoolers who are struggling as well. We open our centers so that people can have connectivity to their computers. In addition to all that, we've been fighting just like the rest of us have with no electricity. So we've been funding people um, to help get different things that they need. We've also had to fund a lot of our families um, because they're the sole um, worker in their family. And so when the family gets sick with COVID and they have no source of income. So we've been helping with some of that. And then another need physically that we meet <clears throat> is housing. In our community, little 600 to 900 square foot homes rent for between 500, 700, 800, $900 a month. That forces two of our families to have to live together in one of those homes. So we have started a housing program. We own six homes in our neighborhood that we do a rent-to-own program so someone can eventually become a homeowner. And right now, we're in the middle of our huge 12th Street Casa project. We're building seven new single-family homes. So seven of our community members that are totally invested in FaithWorks will be able to live in a home that provides for their family where they'll have adequate heat and plumbing and be able to improve our neighborhood. So those are things that we do. Here's kind of what's happened financially. We started off with a bang at the beginning of COVID. Everybody was so happy to help us and we were so extremely grateful. And then like everything else, people got scared, times changed, things changed, and our donations have really dwindled. So my fear is how are we gonna finish out this year? Um, we still have electricity, we still have food, we still have gas money, we still have all those needs and those college students that are still plugging away that need our help. Um, so just be praying that we can get the funds that we need to finish strong and continue to pray for FaithWorks and thank you for helping us. You may, yeah.
On the subject of generosity, last month, our children's ministry and student ministry raised money for Serve Hope, a ministry in Honduras. Well, FaithWorks, the 40 kids that Sally just mentioned, also decided to raise some money for Honduras and Serve Hope as well. And how, how much did those 40 kids come now, up those with? Those 40 little kids raised $450. Can you yeah. believe that? So it's just neat to see generosity being sown in uh, to the lives of those of children. Uh, I'm a board member at FaithWorks of the Inner City as well as several other, other of our church members. And so we're just very vested in what FaithWorks is about, what they're doing, the way they continue to propagate the gospel uh, in, a, in a tough neighborhood in Oklahoma City, but a neighborhood that's get, just increasingly loved uh, by the Christians that are there, by FaithWorks, uh, and the work that it's doing. In the coming weeks, you'll begin seeing the Christmas sacks that we annually hand out uh, to you for you to fill and bring back to, to be distributed uh, amongst uh, students at Scheidler Elementary. So take, uh, make, make sure you keep your eyes peeled uh, and look for those, grab one, and, uh, and bring one of those back. So that's a good blessing to, to FaithWorks and to that neighborhood. Let's pray for Sally, and we'll continue with our worship this morning. Father, I thank you so much for... Uh, Faith Works of the Inner City. I thank you for the way it's served as a conduit for our church to serve uh, our local area. I thank you for Sally's willing and available heart, uh, her desire to, uh, to, to reach that area um, and to just do nothing short um, of uh, just miraculous things. Uh, to see programs come together, buildings come together, projects come together. You, can, you just go before her every step of the way. Uh, we thank you for her faith and her desire to follow you and be obedient to you. Um, God, I pray that you, she would just continue to have that same spirit as uh, she leads this ministry. And I pray that our church would continue to have a generous heart and a willing heart uh, toward being involved with faith works. Lord, I ask that the, the gospel continue to be proclaimed in that neighborhood um, and that as people's lives are transformed, the neighborhood is transformed. We thank you for the risen Christ. We thank you that we're a people who are saved and set free uh, and eternally loved uh, by our Lord Jesus. And we want to continue to give praise to him today. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue to worship today, we are so excited to have our Kingdom Kids Choirs joining us to lead you in worship today. They're going to sing a couple of great songs. This first one is of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave all of his begotten son for us. And so you can listen and sing along with us as you learn this.
Father, we declare that you are worthy today. Thank you for reminding us of that through the voices of these children, through their faces. God, may we all have childlike faith today in you, the one whose name holds all power and is above every other name. God, we praise you. We look forward to how the truth of your word is going to change us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, those are great words. We thank you all. Thank you, young people and kids, so much for singing those great words to us today. Thank you, Carmen, and all your staff again. Amen. God bless you guys. He's worthy. He is worthy. He is. That's why we're here today, to uh, praise our God for His worthiness and uh, to, uh, to gather together as God's people, to fellowship together. Um, I know that uh, with all the events of uh, this last week that uh, some of you may be uh, discouraged and downcast a bit, and I thought I would uh, begin this morning with uh, a brief word of, of encouragement. I, I was thinking this week about all the things that have been happening, and I went back to a little booklet I have written by Erwin Lutzer. Many of you may know that name. But he had a little booklet he wrote years ago called, Where Do We Go From Here? And I thought I'd just uh, share two little helpful nuggets from that book that encouraged me. He said, there's an old saying, we can't talk about standing on the rock of ages and then act as if we're clinging to our last piece of driftwood. And that's the way a lot of people are. I think yeah, we claim to stand on the rock of ages, and then, you know, when things don't go our way, we act like we're hanging to the last piece of driftwood. Um, our God is the rock of ages. The rock of ages stands. And if we're standing in Him, then we stand as well. Now, one other statement that I will help me in the book is Erwin Lutzer said, whether or not we win in our cultural struggles is really up to God. Whether we are faithful is to a large extent up to us. Look, it's up to God whether we're successful in cultural struggles and things in this world, but uh, to a large extent, it's up to you and me whether we're faithful to God or not. And that's what we need to do. Let's be faithful uh, to the calling of the gospel upon our lives in these times in which we live. Uh, one other uh, statement I, I've read, uh, Art Buchwald years ago said, I don't know if these are the best of times or the worst of times, but they're the only times we've got. And I like that. These are the times God's given to us to live in. We need to seize the opportunities God has given to us and be faithful to Him. Well, let's pray as we begin here this morning. Father, we come before you and we bow humbly before you. You're the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You're our rock of ages. and We trust you and we cling to you. And Lord, we confess today that we need you. We need you in our lives. We need you in this church. We need you in our nation. And Lord, we trust in you and we believe that all that you're doing will ultimately work together for good to those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, we look out in our community today and we see the, the outbreak of COVID that's um, really uh, ramping up. And we just pray that would begin, begin to weaken, Father, and to wane. And we ask you to have your uh, healing hand upon our nation. Father, we pray especially today for Dr. David Kim and his wife, Janet. Uh, Dr. Kim is in ICU and, and suffering badly with COVID. His life's really hanging in the balance. We love Dr. Kim. We thank you for him, for his life. And Lord, we just call upon you now to have your healing hand, Lord, upon him. Raise him back to full health. Help him to recuperate fully. Father, I pray that you'll energize all of us in this time in which we live to be faithful to you. It's the only time we have. Help us to be faithful in our generation. Help us to be faithful in our marriages and in our, our families and our relationships and our ministries. And now, Father, as we come to this time in our service to open your word, 
We pray that as we open this inspired, inerrant Word of God, that we might hear your voice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting here with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. Um, we're, we're so thankful you've come to be here with us this morning. And we're in an exposition right now of the book of Daniel. So if you'll take your Bible and turn with me uh, to Daniel chapter 8, that's where we will begin this morning, Daniel chapter 8. And our text this morning is Daniel 8, verses 1 through 8. So let me begin this morning by reading these eight verses for us. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer was coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand against him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered the two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken." And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. Some of you may know the name G.K. Chesterton. His name was Gilbert Keith Chesterton. He was an English writer, philosopher, a lay theologian. Uh, one time he gave a picture book to a child, and he wrote these words in the front of the book. He said, this is the sort of book we like, for you and I are very small with pictures stuck in anyhow, and hardly any words at all. You will not understand a word of all the words, including mine. You never trouble, you can see, and all directness is divine. Stand up and keep your child, childish, childishness. Read all the pedants, screeds, and strictures. But don't believe in any, anything that can't be told in colored pictures. And I like that. That's a good way to begin a picture book. In the book of Daniel, uh, God seems to share Chesterton's sentiments. A Daniel is a picture book. It's a story that's told in colored pictures. We see that over and over again. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, we see that metallic man, the, the, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the legs of iron. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar sees the vision of a great tree that's chopped down. Just last week as we finished Daniel 7, we saw the, the four beasts there that represent these four great empires. And again, Daniel 8 is no exception to this pattern of pictures. In this chapter, once again, we have some incredible images that are going to reveal some very important truths to us about God and His Word. Now, to unpack these pictures, I have three main points on our outline this morning. We're going to spend just a little bit of time on the first two and the lion's share of our time on the last point. I want to look at the structure briefly of this chapter, the setting of it, and then I want to spend most of our time on the significance of it. 
So let's begin by just noting a couple of important uh, features about the structure of this chapter. Um, First of all, the language of this chapter. Uh, We've pointed out several times that Daniel's a bilingual book. Um, In Daniel chapter 8, the language switches from Aramaic back to Hebrew. Now, what we've seen uh, in the book of Daniel is chapter 1 was written in the Hebrew language. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, it switches to Aramaic all the way through chapter 7 because that was kind of the language of the day, and he's writing a lot of prophecies related to these Gentile nations. So he writes it in their language so they can read it and understand it. But now in Daniel 8, in chapters 8 through 12, he's going to really come back and focus more on Israel, so the language switches back now uh, to the Hebrew language. Um, So that's the language of the book. The layout of of this chapter is pretty simple. Uh, First, you have a vision of a ram and a goat. We have a vision of a ram and a goat, and we'll talk extensively about that here in a moment. Then we have a vision beginning in verse 9 and following that we'll look at next time of a little horn, and then in verses 15 to 27, the vision's going to be interpreted by the angel Gabriel. But again, this prophecy was future for Daniel, but it's history for us. So we can look back, as we'll see here this morning, and see the precise fulfillment of these prophecies in history. Now, one more key to the background of this chapter is the setting. You'll notice in verse 1, it's the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Back in chapter 7, it was the first year of Belshazzar. This is probably here in chapter 8, about 550 B.C. So Daniel's about 70 years old at this time. And notice Daniel says he has this vision when he's in the citadel of Susa. Now, Daniel is in Babylon uh, Susa is about 220 miles east of Babylon. It's in the uh, province of Elam. It's the capital of Elam. It later becomes one of the great royal cities of the Persian Empire. It was the winter residence of Persian kings. And it later is the home of Esther. And it's the, uh, the city Nehemiah comes from to go build Jerusalem. And he's there by the Ulai Canal, which was a 900-foot-wide hand-cut canal that joined two rivers that ran through the city of Susa. Now, I don't think Daniel literally went to Susa. I think he was transported by God there in a prophetic vision because that's where these prophecies he's going to mention here are going to be fulfilled. Now, with those housekeeping details in mind, we come to the real focus of this vision here in verses 3 through 8, and I call this the significance. Now, what we have here is Daniel is going to zoom in and focus on two of the kingdoms that he previously mentioned in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. He's going to zero in on the middle two of the four empires from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Now, hopefully this will help. In uh, Daniel 2, you remember you have the, the, the image Gold, silver, bronze, and iron that stands for Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then in Daniel 7, you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, and this terrible beast with with ten horns that represents those same empires. But now in Daniel 8, he's going to just focus in and zero in on those two middle empires, Medo-Persia and Greece, a ram and a goat. Here's another way to see this. All four empires in Daniel 2, all four empires under another uh, symbol in Daniel 7, and now he narrows down just to these two center empires, Medo-Persia and Greece. Now, what we're going to see here this morning in these six verses, verses 3 through 8, are five amazing prophecies, astounding prophecies that are going to reveal to us more of who God is 
and the trust and confidence we can have in his word. Now, the first uh, prophecy here is the rise of the Greek empire. This prophecy here, it's going to talk about Medo-Persia a little bit, but it's going to focus in on Greece. Now, think about the Medo-Persian empire was already in existence when Daniel's writing this. So what he says about the Medo-Persian empire is not really prophecy. But what he's going to say about the Greek empire that's not going to rise for 200 years is prophetic uh, revelation that he's giving to us. Now, the first thing that that Daniel sees is a ram in verse 3. Notice, I lifted my gaze, and a ram that had two horns is standing in front of the canal. Now, I love this because in this chapter, we're not left to our own imagination or speculation about what this ram is. If you go over to verse 20, it says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So we're told clearly this is the Medo-Persian Empire. I love that when God gives us kind of the built-in interpretation. Now, a ram is a fitting symbol of Persia because Persian rulers would often carry a gold ram's head um, when they marched out before their army. And nations back in that day were often given a sign of the zodiac to represent them. And the sign of the zodiac given to Persia was Ares, the ram. And of course, we all know that a ram is a symbol of strength. I mean, just ask Dodge, right? What do they say about their trucks? Ram tough, right? So it's a symbol of of strength and power. Now, rams normally have two horns, but these horns are unique. One horn comes up first. A second horn comes up later, but it's longer than the first horn. And that's exactly what happened in the Persian Empire. The Median part of the empire arose first. The Persian Empire comes later, but it becomes the dominant part and, and rises higher. So that's perfectly fulfilled here in the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. And and he goes on here, Daniel does, and recounts the stunning conquests of the Persian kings, especially under Cyrus the Great, as they go out and and really conquer the world of that day. Now, the prophecy, the the future aspect of the prophecy here, really begins in verse 5 when Daniel sees a goat. I was observing in verse 5, and behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the earth without touching the ground. I mean, this is a fast-moving goat. And again, in verse 21, we have the built-in interpretation that says, and the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. So we know this is the Greek empire. And of course, the goat was the well-known symbol for Greece. Uh, The zodiac sign for Greece in that day was Capricorn, uh, the goat. Um, Also, the first Greek colony was established, according to legend. An oracle was given, and a goat was sent out to guide them to build a city. And they found this city, and the name of it was Aji, which means the goat city. If you travel today to that part of the world, the Aegean Sea, that lies between Europe and Asia, is the goat sea. So this is a symbol here of the Greek empire. So Daniel here predicts in 550 B.C. the rise of the Greek empire 200 years after he writes this in Daniel chapter 8. So that's the first uh, part of this fulfillment. The second part here is it goes on, and our second fulfillment I call the reputation of the king. Notice it says here in uh, in verse uh, verse 8 and down in verse 5, The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, a prominent or a notable horn. 
Now, we're talking here about this goat today, and we often hear about goats, especially related to sports. Michael Jordan's often called the goat, right? What does that stand for? Greatest of all time. Uh, Tom Brady's often called the goat of quarterbacks, the greatest of all time. Well, Alexander the Great here is the goat, if you will, and he is the greatest of all time military conquerors. He's the greatest of all time uh, military rulers. And we see here in Daniel 8.21, if you go to the interpretation, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And this first king of the Greek empire, the great king, of course, is Alexander the Great. A little bit about him, many of you may know some about Alexander. He was educated by Aristotle, so he had a pretty good teacher. Um, His father dies when he's 20 years of age in a place called uh, Virginia. He's assassinated there in a theater. And uh, several years ago, I had the privilege to go to a G in Virginia and Pella and all these places there uh, where Alexander the Great was. One of the the best trips of my life, seeing these these unbelievable sights there. But his, his father's assassinated when he's 20. And he basically takes the the Greek army to go against the Persians when he's 22 years of age. He leaves home at age 22, and he never returns uh, back home again. He leaves a place called Pella, and uh, they cross the Hellespont. They're the narrow body of water that that, uh, divides Europe from Asia. Um, Those of you that went on the uh, Journeys of Paul trip with us years ago, we went through in a boat there through the Hellespont. But he crosses over, and within three years, he's obliterated the Persian Empire. Um, He's crushed them. He's basically conquered the entire Middle East in three years. And his rise to power is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, and he fulfills it 200 years later. Now, the third significant prophecy here is what I call the routing of the Persian Empire. Look in verse 6. And he came up to the horn, uh, the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in mighty wrath. And literally, it means to be hot. I mean, he's angry. What happened is, if you know history, in 490 and 480 BC, the Persians had come over and tried to conquer the Greeks. The Greeks were able to repel them. And this is 150 years later, but the Greeks hadn't forgotten that. They nursed a grudge all that time and wanted to get back at the Persians for what they'd done. So they come in, in hot wrath, if you will, to come uh, against uh, the ram. And he says, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. So Daniel here sees a violent collision, a charging goat hitting a standing ram. And this is a vivid image of Alexander's rout and ruin of the Persian army. Now think about this. Alexander leaves Greece with an army of 35,000. And the Persian army, some say had a million, but most of the best estimates are about 600,000. With 35,000 troops, he goes over and just decimates uh, the Persian empire. And of course, Alexander's success is well known to history. And it really is like his feet never touched the ground. I mean, the speed and the scope of his conquest, he went farther and faster than any empire on earth. Now, if you like history, you're in luck here this morning. Get a little bit of history lesson. Hopefully, I won't bore you with this, but this stuff's exciting to me, especially as it relates to the Bible. 
Uh, when Alexander crosses over the Hellespont with his 35,000 troops, he meets a Persian force at a place called the Granicus River in 334. And that's a fierce battle. He's almost killed in the battle, but he routs the Persians. And he goes on from there um, about a year later, and he basically um, kind of finishes the Persians at a battle called the Battle of Issus. And at that battle there in 333, he destroys the forces of, of, of Darius. In fact, what's fascinating is Alexander is so confident of victory, he doesn't even go on and mop up the Persians. He takes a 20-month detour and goes on down through Gaza and Tyre and by the city of Jerusalem and on down into Egypt, and then comes back up after 20 months and finally finishes them off at a place called Guagamela or Arbella. And that's how confident he is in his victories. Now, some of you may not care about this kind of stuff, but if you like military history, I couldn't resist showing this to you. This is really one of the things that allowed Alexander to defeat the enemies. It was called the Macedonian phalanx. His father, Philip II, came up with this. You had 256 men, 16 rows across, 16 by 16. And what you could do is obviously they could be going one direction. A, a leader would give the call. They could all turn and go the other direction. It was just like, a, a, just like a huge moving wedge through the enemy. And by using this, uh, they were able to conquer much larger army, armies. Basically, they, he just cut up the Persian forces into pieces like the pieces of a pie. And they would go in in these, these phalanx and drive wedges into the lines of the Persians. And then Alexander's cavalry would pour in behind them and basically just decimate uh, the Persian army. So this is really what allowed them in many ways to, to carry out their great conquest. But as I said a minute ago, after Alexander wins the second big victory at Issus, basically it's kind of over. And uh, what he does is he takes a 20-month detour down to the south. One of the cities he comes to is the city of Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Tyre for 13 years and was never able to conquer it. Alexander takes the city in seven months and burns it to the ground. And his strategy there is amazing if you want to read about that. But Alexander then, before he goes down to Egypt, he stops by the city of Jerusalem. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So keep that in the back of your mind. I'm going to come back in a moment and tell you that story. It's a great story. But he goes on down to Egypt. He founds the city of Alexandria. Um, he's actually declared a god there. And then he comes back up north, crushes the, the army there, the Persian army, for a decisive victory there at Guagamela. After that, he goes all the way to India. He carves out an empire of 1.5 million square miles over a period of 12 years, and he never lost a battle. The greatest military strategist and, and leader really of all time. Now, it was said of Alexander that he was able to conquer the world, but he was never really able to conquer himself. So Alexander meets his ruin at an early age. Notice in verse 8, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. This is the empire that he carves out. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And that's exactly what happens in history. At the pinnacle of his power, at the summit of his strength, the horn is broken. We don't know what happened to Alexander. We know he died of some fever. Some believe he got malaria or some other disease. Um, others believe that it was just all of the, the drinking and the partying and the profligate living that he was doing that finally took his life. But he'd made his way back to Babylon, and in, Ju in June of 323 B.C., he dies, think about this, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It's fitting. 
The great horn was broken. You know, I've often been struck by the last words of Alexander the Great. Here's the last words of this great military leader who's broken. Here's what he said before he died. Bury my body. Do not build any monument. Keep my hands outside the coffin so that the world will know that the man who won the world died with nothing in his hands. At least he had some degree of wisdom, didn't he? He'd conquered the world, but he wanted people to know that he was leaving this world empty-handed. By the way, I'll just pause for a moment and say that's the way we all go, right? We all leave empty-handed. Only what we've laid up in heaven uh, will be waiting for us there someday. Now, it seems on the surface that Alexander is just kind of fulfilling his own dreams of conquest when he's doing all this, but in reality, he's playing a role in God's prophetic plan. He's fulfilling these prophecies spoken by Daniel. But also, there's something else that's very significant here, and that is the cultural and biblical importance of Alexander. As he goes across the world of that day uh, conquering, he's leaving something very, very important behind, and that is the Greek language became known as Koine Greek or the common Greek language. And uh, not long after Alexander dies, the Old Testament that's written in Hebrew is translated into that common Greek language. It's called the Septuagint. But also think about this. This is preparation for the first coming of Christ, His coming to earth, and the writing of the New Testament in New Testament Greek that people all over the world of that day could read and understand. So God is behind all of this, working uh, behind the scene. And, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating about this that you and I should grasp is God can use the evil of man to accomplish His purposes. He uses what what, what Alexander does and accomplishes His purposes through it. Uh, There's a really good quote by a guy named W.W. Tarn. He says this about Alexander. He says, he was one of the supreme fertilizing forces in history. That's that's well said. He's the supreme fertilizing force in history. He lifted the civilized world out of one groove and set it in another. He started a new epoch. Nothing could again be as it had been. Greek culture, heretofore practically confined to Greeks, spread throughout the world, and in the place of many dialects, there grew up the form of Greek known as the koine, or the common speech. That's what our New Testament is written in. It's written in the koine Greek language. So God uses all of these events to fulfill prophecy, to put His stamp, if you will, on the authority and the veracity of the Bible but also to show that he can use the evil of man to accomplish his purposes. Now, the fifth and final fulfilled prophecy here is the redistribution of Alexander's empire. Notice here in verse 8, but as soon as 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 he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, we know historically when Alexander dies, his empire is fragmented into four parts. It's partitioned into four pieces. And uh, that corresponds in in Daniel 7. You remember Greece is pictured as the leopard with four heads. So it pictures the, the breaking up of his empire into four pieces. And again, verse 22 tells us, and the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So it takes about 20 years 
But by, within about 20 years, Alexander's kingdom, sure enough, gets divided up into four parts, four generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and uh, Seleucus. Now, all of these prophecies are confirmed by history. Daniel is getting this vision in about 550 B.C. All of this is happening in about 330 B.C. And note the astounding detail, the precision of this. I mean, five prophecies, the rise of the Greek empire, the reputation of the king, the routing of the Persian army, uh, the ruin of Alexander the Great, the redistribution of Alexander's uh, empire. Now, I told you that I was going to tell you a story about what happened when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem. So he wins this big battle at Issus, takes this 20-month detour. He goes down, he's conquering city after city as he's going along. And Alexander's making his way down the coast. He's left Gaza in ruins, and he moves his army towards Jerusalem. All of this is recorded, by the way, this story by the Jewish historian Josephus. So if you want to sometime this week put in Josephus and put in Alexander the Great, you can read all of this. But the high priest of Jerusalem was a man named Yadua, and he hears that Alexander the Great's coming, and as you can imagine, he's very distraught because he thinks they're going to come in and wipe out the city of Jerusalem. So he called the people to fast and pray for God's protection. And in a dream, God gives Yadua a dream and tells him, tells him to adorn the city, open the gates, and put on their finest white garments and go out to meet Alexander as he nears the city. So as Alexander approaches, he sees these citizens in their finery and sees the priests in these white linen garments led by the high priest Yadua. And as they approach, Alexander the Great does something he's never done before and never did after. He bows down to this priest, Yadua. Now, his generals at that point think he's absolutely lost his mind. And they ask him, why are you doing this? And Alexander tells them, he says, back in Greece, when we were at a place called uh, uh, Dios, when we were there, remember, celebrating before we left, they're leaving for this long conquest. And they're having a big party there and kind of whooping it up before they leave Greece. And he says, one night I had a dream, and a man in, in priestly garments, white priestly garments came, and he told me that God was going to give me victory over the Persians, that I would conquer them. And that's what gave me the confidence to go forth uh, to uh, uh, take this great uh, expedition. So Alexander recognized the Jewish priest in these white garments as the divine messenger that he had seen in his dream. And so by honoring him, he believed he was honoring the God who'd appointed him as high priest. Now the story gets even better because according to Josephus, Alexander the Great accompanied the priests and the multitude to the temple. And here's what Josephus says. When he went into the temple, he offered sacrifice to God. This is, this is Alexander the Great according to the high priest's direction, and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. And when the book of Daniel was showed to him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. The Jewish high priest pulls out a copy of the book of Daniel and shows him in Daniel chapter 8, where it's prophesied that a great Greek ruler is going to come and destroy the Persian empire. And Alexander the Great believed that he was the fulfillment of that. 
So Alexander offered sacrifices to God in the temple, and he's shown by Yahdua, the high priest, the very passage that you and I are studying right now, a prophecy that the Greek army would destroy the Medo-Persians. And Alexander saw himself as the fulfillment of that. Now, don't miss the astounding implications of this event because they give powerful evidence to the validity of this prophecy because history records that Alexander saw the prophecies of Daniel, which means they had to have been written before that period of time. Because what liberal scholars say is, they say, well, you know, Daniel didn't really write this. Somebody else wrote this later, you know, after Daniel, after it all happened. It's not prophecy, it's history. Well, if you do, the high priest can show Alexander the Great a copy of the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 8 and the prophecy about him in it, then it had to be written before that time. It's an unbelievable confirmation of Daniel chapter 8 and the veracity of this prophecy that's been given. But to me, this is astounding. Yahdua the high priest gives Alexander a copy of Daniel. He says, he gives, it says to Alexander, you got to read this. You're in here. Now, when you think about all this, we've talked about a lot of dates and people and history, but what do we learn from this uh, that we can take with us for this coming week. One of the things I see in this that's so strong is you can trust the Bible entirely because the Bible's entirely true. It's a lesson about the Scriptures. The Bible verifies itself through prophecy. The Bible has an amazing track record of telling the future with 100% accuracy 100% of the time. And Daniel 8, what we have here this morning, is just a rich sample of that. You and I can trust the Word of God and believe it. And young people who are here, and you may be caught up in things that you're seeing online of skepticism and doubt about the Word of God, don't believe it. Like one theologian said, the Bible is the Word of God to such an extent what the Bible says, God says. Yesterday, I was uh, watching a few football games, and I got kind of bored with some of those, and I went over to another channel, and I watched about 30 minutes of a, of a documentary about Billy Graham. And you all know how much I love Billy Graham. I got saved at the age of five listening to him preach on television. And it was talking about how he had a crisis in his life as a young man as he began to go into ministry about whether the Word of God was really true, whether it was really the inspired and errant Word of God. He had this great crisis event, and finally, he got down on his knees, and he said, I'm going to take the Bible for what it claims to be and trust it as the Word of God. And that was right before these great crusades that began in Los Angeles that really just took that city and that state and the country by storm. And he goes back to that and says he believes it's because of his trust and confidence in the Word of God. It was fascinating listening to him as an older man. He said, back then I didn't really know what to preach. So he said, what I did is I would just cut Bibles up and cut verses out of them and paste them into my notes. And what he would say, and if you go back and listen to his early sermons, he says, I would say over and over again, the Bible says, and then he would read what the Scripture says. And he'd make a few comments. And he would say, the Bible says, and he would read another Scripture and comment on it. And he would say, the Bible says. And that became the hallmark of his ministry, the foundation of it. The Bible says. That confidence that he had in uh, the, the truth and the veracity and the inspiration of the Word of God. And that's the way you and I need to be in this day in which we live, where there's so much doubt and so much skepticism. We need to, for our own lives, and as we minister to others, repeatedly say, the Bible says, the Bible says, it's the Word of God. 
So there's a lesson here for us about the Scriptures. There's a lesson here for us about the sovereignty of God. God controls nations, and God controls empires, and God controls elections. God controls it all. And you and I need to know that, and we need to rest in that and be greatly comforted and rejoice in that this morning. There's a lesson here about service. Go down to the very end of Daniel chapter 8. This is the last verse of the chapter. We'll cover some more to get there next time. But he says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. But I like that where Daniel says, I got up and I carried on the king's business. In other words, knowing the truth of God's word and his sovereign might, you and I should prayerfully work for the Lord and faithfully go about the king's business. Go out this week and whatever he has for you to do, go out and take care of it. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Do business till I come back. That's the calling on our lives. And then finally, one one final point I'll mention here as we close. There's a lesson here certainly about the Scriptures. There's a lesson about, uh, about God's sovereignty. There's a lesson about service, but there's a lesson about the Savior. I said earlier that Alexander's the goat. He was the greatest of all time of military leaders, but really Jesus is the ultimate goat. Jesus is the greatest of all time. In fact, He's not just the greatest of all time. He's the God of all time. And prophecy confirms who Jesus is to us. It's prophecy that confirms to us the unique nature of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. There's a, a book, I've mentioned it to you a bunch of times, Robert Morgan's book, 100 Bible Verses That Changed America. But he was, he's got a story in there he tells about President Reagan. And um, his father-in-law's health was failing. His name was Loyal, his father-in-law. And Billy, uh, or, uh, Ronald Reagan writes this letter to his father-in-law on August 7, 1982, when, when he's president. Let me just read this to you. He says, Loyal, I know of your feeling and and your doubt, but I could just impose upon you a little bit. Some 700 years ago, before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of a Messiah. They said he would be born in a lowly place, would proclaim himself the Son of God, and would be put to death for saying that. All in all, there were a total of 123 specific prophecies about his life, all of which came true. Crucifixion was unknown in those times, yet it was foretold that he would be nailed to a cross of wood. And one of the predictions was that he would be born of a virgin. He said, no, I know that's probably the hardest for you as a doctor to accept. The only answer that can be given is this. It's a miracle. But loyal, I don't find that as great a miracle as the actual history of his life. Either who he was and who he said he was. He was either the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and faker suffer the death he did? Well, all he had to do to save himself was admit he's been lying. The miracle is that of a young man of 30 years without credentials as a scholar or priest began preaching on street corners. He owned nothing but the clothes on his back and didn't travel beyond a circle of less than 100 miles across. He did this for only three years and then was executed as a common criminal. But for 2,000 years, he's had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived all put together. The Apostle John said it best, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We've been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help us when we've done all we can. 
We've come to the end of our strength and abilities, and we'll have that help. We only have to trust and have faith in His infinite goodness and mercy. And then I love the way he ends this. He says, loyal, you and Edith have known a great love, more than many have been permitted to know. That love will not end with the end of this life. We've been promised this is only a part of life, and a greater life, a greater glory awaits us. It awaits you together one day, and all that is required of you is that you believe and tell God that you put yourself in his hands. Love, Ronnie. Pretty good letter from the president to his father-in-law. But what does he appeal to? Prophecy. He tells about the prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. He's the only true way to God. Well, I'll close with this this morning. There's a great poem, and I love poems. Some of you may not care that much about them, but if you want to look this up as well, you'll enjoy it. I'm just going to read one stanza of it, but it's called Jesus and Alexander. It was written years ago. It's a contrast between Jesus and Alexander, who both died at the age of 33. And every stanza begins with these words, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. Let me just quote this one stanza to you. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon, one on Calvary. One gained all for self, one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the God made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek forever, fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, the King of kings and Lord of lords. May his name be praised forever. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never believed in him, the one who came and lived the sinless life, the one who died on the cross and bore your sin debt. You can believe in him now and trust in him, the one who rose from the dead, and you can take him to be your Savior from sin. If you've never done that, why not do that now? Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. He's the only Savior. He's the only way to God. Trust in him if you've never done so. You can trust the Word of God. It's true. Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that you'll take what we've studied here this morning and give us a supreme confidence in the authority, the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Father, we thank you that you're sovereign, that you're in control of all of history, in control of our lives. And Father, we thank you for our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and gave himself for us, the greatest of all time. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we are dismissed this morning with the Lord's blessing upon us. Uh, thank you for being here with us. If you're visiting, we're, we're so glad you're here this morning, and it was so great to have these kids up here singing these great songs. I mean, those were great songs they sang this morning, and I'm so thankful that they have those words in their hearts. Um, if you are visiting with us, go out these doors down a little ways on the right, and there's a welcome center there, and you can get some more information about our church and uh, maybe just uh, get acquainted with, with, with one of our members there. Um, I'll be down front here after the service. We'll kind of have to be on the sides, but the elders who are present will be down front with me, and we'd love the opportunity this morning to get acquainted with you, maybe uh, pray with you if you have a need or a burden you'd want to share with us this morning. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here this morning uh, with the Lord's blessing upon us. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All God's people said, amen. God bless you.